0: Again, welcome to Freedom. It is so good to have you here today and to have many more who are uh, tuning in online. We're always grateful to have you tune in that way. We're still at a place where far more than half of the congregation is uh, watching from at home, and we certainly understand that. But we want you guys to know that we miss you, and we look forward to the day that we are all back together. And it's fun week by week to uh, see new faces reappearing, familiar faces that we just haven't been able to see in a while. So as uh, we continue to see the numbers go down, and praise God, they are going down. Aren't you glad to hear this morning, among the many things that we have to be thankful for, that in Baldwin County in the last three weeks, the new case numbers have declined 60% in three weeks. Thanks be to God for that. That is good news, which makes it easier for us to gather and do things like this. So again, welcome to Freedom. Freedom. As uh, Brad said, we have a lot to celebrate today, and among those things, we celebrate uh, an anniversary, so happy anniversary to uh, Freedom Church. It was exactly eight years ago on this Sunday, the third Sunday of August, that we uh, had our first public service that, that we had shared with the community. We'd had a little core group for about two months that had been meeting, preparing for that, but that was the public launch eight years ago today, and that's exciting that here on the eighth anniversary that we come together I think it's kind of cool that God launched uh, both of these churches in the same year 2012 that uh, these are two eight-year-old congregations that are coming together but we are definitely celebrating today the marriage of two churches and it really is in many ways a marriage service that we're having today the the joining you know when a when people get married it's not just two people getting married it is two families that are coming together and that's what's happening today two families come together and as uh, Ken said in an email he sent out this week, uh, it it is not just going to be the sum total of the parts that you bring together in two churches. We really believe that God is doing something so much bigger and more significant than that and uh, we celebrate that and we want to spend some time today giving thought to what it is that God is putting together today. And I will tell you, this is one of those weeks when the Holy Spirit pulled an audible on me. One of those times where I thought I knew the plan, and it was not the plan for today. So I had a sermon outline prepared for the day. We were going back to Jonah, and the Holy Spirit said, not so fast. And we're going in a different direction today. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We will return to Jonah next week. Uh, I falsely advertised what I'd be preaching today. Well, you'll get that next Sunday. And it is, it is an encouraging word from Jonah 3 that we'll be in. But today, Ephesians 4, a message that is entitled, Better together, and we truly do believe that we are going to be better together. I get to do, and and have had, had the opportunity to do over the years, quite a bit of premarital counseling, and one of the things that I have shared with a lot of couples that are preparing for marriage is that among the many things that you could say about what marriage does in your life is that marriage, in some ways, works like a solvent that gets you unstuck from where you have been. Now, not everybody's supposed to get married, not everybody needs to be married, but for those of us who get married, if it's a healthy marriage, if it's a good marriage, one of the things that you'll look back and be able to say is, I had sort of been stuck in a routine, I had sort of been stuck in a place in life, and when I got married, it helped get me unstuck from where I was to experience so much more, and I truly believe that, that what we're going to see is for Graceport Church and for Freedom Church that we're going to get sort of unstuck from some old routines and some old places and be freed up to move way past where we had been before. And as we look together at the passage today that I believe speaks... So well to what is taking place today, I want to encourage you as we read this. We tend as Westerners when we read the scriptures and when we think about anything that God is doing, to always want to think of it first and foremost as being all about me and God, like we're all in this solo relationship with Jesus and everything in the Word was written to me or it was written to you, and that is a very Western way of of looking at things. The people who wrote the Bible were all Easterners, and, and Easterners from their perspective think In terms of community, they think very communally. And so when they wrote the Scriptures and when they would read the Scriptures, they would read it very much in a context of community. So as we read Ephesians 4, while, yes, it certainly has an application to each of our lives, I want you to recognize how this speaks to us as a family of faith. We begin in verse 1 where Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Of all the verses in the New Testament, this has to be among the five verses that the Holy Spirit over the years has most frequently brought back to mind and just whispered into my spirit just in a variety of different situations to say, you live worthy of the calling that you have received. Verse 2, now think about this, he's going to spell out what it looks like to live this life worthy of the high calling that we've received from God. When you think about all of the incredible things that God has called you to do, me, us collectively to do, to impact the world, to change the world, to touch the community, and yet when he begins to talk about what this is going to look like, when we live worthy of this calling, we may be a little surprised at the direction he turns his attention. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, anybody who's been married for more than five minutes knows that we need every word of instruction that Paul just gave us here about what it's going to take for us to be one. There's a lot of ones in that passage, aren't there? A lot of talk about oneness, but a lot of very practical instructions about what it's going to take for us to be able to be one. There are five truths in this that I want to talk to you about today, and I'm going to just go ahead and say as a disclaimer on the front end, don't get freaked out when Halfway through the message, I'm still talking about the first point. Some of you are going to be getting nervous. We're going to need to bring a sack lunch. That's not the case. I'm fully intending to spend much of my time on the first point and then move quickly through the others. But of the five things I want you to notice today, the first truth is this, that we need to identify, again, thinking as a church, we need to identify what is distinctive about our unique calling. He begins in the passage that we read by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. There's something that's distinctive about that. And then in verse 7, the other bookend, he says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. it." again, we tend to think of that individually. But what I want you to understand is what God does in our lives individually is very much reflective of how God works within church fellowships. So that there is a a grace on your life. Julie over here has particular gifts and passions and experiences that are going to be different from Forrest, And both of those are from God. And there are going to be some things that you have in common but some things that are very distinct. And in the same way, as a church, there are some things that we share in common with all other churches. But there are some things that are very distinctive about us. We have a sister church right across the parking lot grace anglican we are in close fellowship with pastor scott and and with that church and there's a lot that we share in common but there are some things that are definitely distinctive that they are called to that they have grace for that we don't and vice versa and so it's important to understand what it is that that god has portioned out to us that is distinctive about us now to to think about this what i want to say a couple of things on the front end so that we're clear what we are talking about here there are five things that are universal to all healthy Christian churches, and those same five things are universal to every follower of Christ individually. They are five, God's five great purposes for every believer and for every church, and we can sum them up with five words, discipleship, evangelism, worship, fellowship, and ministry. Now, you could use some some other synonyms to substitute for those, but if you were to just start from scratch and say, what is it that God has called us to focus on and to be about as our primary mission as the church, the New Testament church, it's those five things, discipleship, evangelism, worship, fellowship, and ministry. Consider for just a moment. When we say discipleship, we're just talking about growing to become more and more like Jesus and helping those around us to grow in that process, discipleship. Evangelism, building relationships so that we can introduce other people to our best friend Jesus so that they come to know and love and trust him. Evangelism, worship, both privately and corporately declaring the goodness and the greatness of God and learning to focus our full mind's attention and our full heart's affection on Jesus. Worship, Fellowship in the the New Testament in Greek, that word koinonia, the shared life together, where it's not just sitting in a room like this and, and singing together or listening together. It's doing life together where we really know each other and we learn to trust each other and help each other and be vulnerable with one another. Fellowship and then the final word, ministry, using our specific gifts, passions, experiences in ways that are designed to help meet the felt needs of other people so that we truly make an impact. It's not just a message that we stand up and preach. It's getting our hands dirty, helping other people to get to a better place in life. So when you think through those five things, would you agree with me, that's what the church is supposed to be about, all five of those things. Are are we in agreement? This is audience participation. You can say, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. We're good with those five. Now, here's the thing. I'm not here to talk about that today. That's the given. That is the backdrop for everything. Every time we're ever together, you can bet we are constantly reinforcing those five things. The only thing that you really need to know about those big five is that every church has a tendency to to wrap itself around one of those five, usually based on whoever the primary leader of the church is, and they will either be the evangelism church, always gospel, 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 got to get people led to Jesus but never really doing the other four, or social ministry, always doing ministry but never discipling it. We'll we'll get hung up on doing one and neglect the others. We've got to be careful that we're like a five-legged table where one leg can't be longer than the others. We've got to, in a balanced way, approach all five of those things. So with that said, we understand that's the backdrop for everything else we're going to say today. We want to focus on not the things today, not just what we all have in common, but what is unique about our calling. And I'll go ahead and say just I'm trying to be practical today. Almost as important as identifying what you're called to do is recognizing what you're not called to do. Pastors really wrestle with this because pastors are constantly bombarded with people who come along and say, you know what we ought to do, preacher? And usually what that means is you know what you ought to do. You, you ought to start this thing. You ever thought about... <clears throat> Brad, don't you love it when people get in line to come and tell you or or ask you, have you ever thought about such and such when there is no sweat equity involved in that question? It's disheartening when when people come up with these ideas that you think, yeah, that would be world-changing, that would be life-changing if somebody did it. It would be really exhausting. And when you can tell this person has never spent five minutes ever trying to do that. But they want to say, Stone, you and Caroline, you ought to get busy, and those youth ought to go do this huge thing it's important to get clear on what you are and are not called to do and so i want to take a moment and say a word about what we are not called to do this isn't meant to be an oppressive thing but a liberating thing to say we don't have to do it all because we're not walmart we're never going to replace our sign with the target symbol and say we're going to be like walmart and target we're going to offer more than everybody else nope that is not going to be us Because we're going to stay stay streamlined and focused on what we're called to do. There are great things that some other churches are called to do that we are not going to touch. We're not going to start a Christian school here. I think Christian schools are fantastic. We have a fabulous Christian school in Fairhope that is operated by a local church. And man, we support that and cheer for that. I'll tell you a silly aside. You know the very first conversation that I ever had with my wife? She walked in my office when I was pastoring... At what was church on the eastern shore in those days and i didn't know her from adam's house yet she was somebody who attended our church and she walked in to ask would you be open to the idea of us moving this little uh christian school over here and this this church hosting a school here and i said no how no way not a chance am i lying i mean she's like she was kidding me this week about it. it's like I brought up something about a Christian school and she's like yeah I know you don't ever want a Christian school that's the first conversation she and I ever had was for me to say not a chance I don't like I don't know you but even if I did the answer is still no 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 not because I hate that it's not what we're called to do we are not called to have a weekday uh, preschool program through the week there are other churches that do a fabulous job with that and who make that an outreach in the community praise God for that that is not our calling We are not called to to be a church that has 15 different choirs. And and we're going to make choirs our big way of touring the world and and reaching the world. That's not who we're called to be. We are not going to be, we're not called to be a church that Sunday school for all ages becomes the primary program that drives what we do. I love Sunday school. Grew up on Sunday school. Half of what I know about Jesus I learned in Sunday school, I think. But that is not our calling. We are not the great event concert church. You know, there, there are churches that they bring in every group, every singer, every famous speaker that they can, and it's just always what's the next event. That is not our calling. We could go for a while on what we're not called to do. But am I helping you get a little bit of a picture of some of what we're not called to do? That is not who we are. But there are some specific things that are very core. They're fundamental to our Special, unique calling that God has graced us for. I want to give you five words that help to sum up some distinctives about our calling. If you've got your outline and you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to follow along, they're listed there. The first one is the word community or, or fellowship. A major part of, of our calling has to do with this this very real need that people have that's a, a gap in people's lives today where. People are finding it harder and harder to find meaningful, close, personal relationships. Men in particular. It's, it's really crazy when you read the statistics where studies have been done about this, about how few people feel like they have even one close friend that they can be open and honest with and really lean into them with the struggles of life. People are just instead substituting all of these casual relationships and social media relationships. But we have a specific calling to create environments where folks can experience Christian community. Of this, we have a deep conviction that the the most significant growth and learning that happens in a church environment, it happens in circles, not in rows. Let me say that again. The most significant growth and and learning in church usually happens in circles, not in rows. And that is not... About the geometry of worship, I know you guys at Graceport met around round tables this is not about saying round tables are better than than rows. rows are just about efficiency. what we're talking about is that the biggest growth that happens in life doesn't happen because you came to church at ten o'clock on Sunday morning. It happens in an environment where you get to experience community and we've got to work this thing down to much, much smaller numbers where you get to know people, where you talk, where you open up, and you really begin to bear each other's burdens and share the joys and struggles of life together. And small group ministry is a core part of what we're about. In our small group ministry, it meets in homes, and it revolves around three things. We spend a third of our time sharing a meal together so much of Jesus' ministry revolved around mealtime. The dynamics change around a meal. So we eat together every time we meet, and in that time, we just share. We laugh, and we talk, and we just have a good time around a meal. We spend a third of the time around a structured sharing and prayer time, and we spend a third of the time around the Word. It's a very discussion and application-oriented time where we... We go into the Word, but it is, a, <clears throat> it is built off of Sunday morning's teaching. It's a lesson that's written so that if you were here on Sunday morning, you're already primed to go deeper now with what you do in small group and to apply that. That is so key for us. It's not, we don't think of it in terms of a program because it's not. It is much more of an organic thing. We're just trying to create environments that help you, first of all, go deeper in relationships with other people. Now, so many times people will think, that doesn't sound terribly spiritual. Isn't everything supposed to be about going deeper with Jesus? Well, I want to tell you, a big part of going deeper with Jesus is learning to go deeper in life with other people who love Jesus. That's the practical way that you do it. And there's not much in church that facilitates that very well. So this is a huge part of our DNA, and it is killing me that right now in the middle of this pandemic, we're having to alter the plan for a time. We're having to flex a lot of things. This is one of the things that we're having to flex, and I'll just go ahead and say a quick word of explanation about that, not just for the people in the room, but those of you who are watching and listening online and wondering. This is the weekend every year when we kick off our new year of small group ministry, the third weekend of, of August. And we're having to delay that by a month because of a couple of things because of the pandemic, but even more specifically because of what's happening with the two churches coming together. And we need to be very careful to do this in a way that we don't create. Graceport groups and freedom groups that we are one church and that we're all blended together in these groups But also because of the pandemic and because of the whole social distancing issue We don't know how long this will be Maybe it's only one semester. Maybe it's six months. It might be for the whole school year We don't know. We'll just play it by ear But just so you know what's coming When we do start in a month the way that we're going to do this is temporarily going to look very different The meetings will be shorter. Normally our meetings in homes are two hours. We're not going to be in homes for a while. And the meetings are not going to be two hours for a while. We're trying to do this in a way that we get to connect, but where we do it safely. Because we just don't feel like we can keep everybody at the distance that we're supposed to for right now. We're just going to avoid homes. We'll do all the meetings here at the church. We can have a couple of different meetings going simultaneously. Using the youth space next door and the grace room over here. We will eliminate the meal. But we'll still do the share and prayer and the discussion and Bible study time together and we'll we'll still wear masks and we'll still do the six foot distancing thing for a time whether that's a semester or longer we'll we'll have to see but I really want to encourage you, please don't let the fact that for a time, knowing uh, I've still got to wear a mask or whatever friends kingdom agenda is so much more important than a little bit of inconvenience on our part. This is a temporary thing. We're making a temporary adjustment, and we are committed to what God is doing among us as mattering the most, and so we're going to, we're going to press on. We're going to do this. We want you to be a part of that, and I really want to encourage the folks from the Graceport family, and those of you who are just new to the fellowship altogether, maybe you've just come in the past few months. We really want you to be a part of that. Some of you who are watching online who understandably are not comfortable yet being in a room where there are scores of people in the room together. I hope you'll feel safer coming, some of you, coming uh, to a group that's going to have 10 people or 12 people in it that will be distanced. But anyway, this is the plan for the, the fall at least, and we hope that you'll be a part of that. But community is a big part of it. The, the fellowship is a big part. The, the second thing that I would say is a word that defines who we are in our unique calling is the word multiplication. The first command that God ever gave to humanity... Was to be fruitful and to multiply. That is a fundamental calling for the church, but it is a very specific part of the calling to our church to be intentional about embracing a constant strategy strategy for multiplication at two different levels multiplication at a personal level and multiplication at a church level. The church is a living thing, and living things always multiply and grow, or else they, they die. We have a strategy for multiplying in both of those ways. At the personal level, we have a very specific strategy for helping every single one of us to become a disciple maker. Not in just the the vague sense of saying, well, Jim, I hope you learn to make some disciples along the way. And you meet some people and and make disciples. of." No, we we don't think that that's a, a good plan. We think it makes far more sense to say, would you make a commitment to join me and a couple of other guys for a year... I'm going to ask you to make a two-year commitment, but a year that you would spend with me if I'm your leader, and the four of us are going to meet for a solid year. We're going to meet every once a week, every week, and over time, we'll eventually get to the place that we take turns leading what happens in that group. There are three different things we're going to do every week when we meet together, and when that year is up, you're committing that for the following year, at least one year, you'll call together at least two other men Ideally three other men or if you're a woman leading you'll call together two or three ladies and that you will meet for a year. You'll ask them to make a two-year commitment. It is a multiplying discipleship plan and it works and it is profoundly impactful. There are many people in the room right now who have been through this or who are going through this and it is amazing the level of connection and growth that happens in these things. That's at a personal level. At a church level, we are committed to God's calling on us to be a church planting church. Most churches in the course of their entire history never plant another church. And that's not healthy. If we want to reach the world, if we want to impact this community, it is not going to be primarily by saying, let's see if we can get somebody in every one of these seats. We'd have to fill this room up a bunch of times over to have much of an impact. But if we are a church that plants churches, that plant churches, that plant churches... Our impact will be far, far greater. The Lord made it very clear two and a half years ago, speaking a word to me that in the next ten years that we were supposed to plant at least five new churches. And when he said that, I'm thinking, I don't know how in the world we're going to plant one church in that amount of time, much less five churches in ten years. Well, here we are two and a half years in and the Lord's let us plant a house church and now two months ago a new, more conventional church in Nigeria. There's a second campus for, for Freedom Church. And the crazy thing is that church is already larger than Freedom and Graceport Fairhope put together. I'm not talking about the pandemic version. I'm talking about the pre-pandemic version of that. And and we're not done. We're just getting started. Just just go ahead and know we're praying toward the next plant. We're already targeting the next place that we're supposed to plant because churches are supposed to multiply when you look at what it costs to operate a church in America and you realize what, it, what we have to spend per month just to be up and running, and over there for $1,500 a month, we're able to reach hundreds and hundreds of people. It's, it's not a hard thing when you really start thinking it through to want to multiply. And so that is a basic part of our DNA. A third word that's key for us is recovery. Churches, maybe without meaning to, tend to fall into the trap of kind of communicating two different things to people when they come into the church and when they have struggles and and the message at least from my perspective is sort of these two things if you're doing bad stuff really self-destructive stuff or things that are potentially going to blow up your marriage or your family our first message to you is stop it (laughs) you ought not to do that so quit just stop it and that's not really very effective for the really hard stuff in life is it our second, deeper, more powerful message is if, if plan A didn't work, stop it, didn't work, then plan B is go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers, and that will help you stop it. Well, for some things in life, that does help to stop it. That, those things certainly help us to mature. We believe in all three of those. Go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. But we recognize that the biggest hurts, most problematic habits and hang-ups in your life You can go to church the rest of your life. You can read your Bible every day for the rest of your life. You can say your prayers every day and still be hung up, still be crippled by that problem. There is a process that you have to work through, a biblical, Christ-centered process for working past those things and getting to a place of healing and wholeness. And that's why recovery isn't something that we tack on to who we are. Recovery is a fundamental part of who we are we we aren't a church that also lets those people come to our church we are those people we recognize we are the fellowship of the broken but we don't just celebrate our brokenness we celebrate that in christ and by working together cooperating with this process that god has that he makes us whole again and so recovery is a major part of who we are the fourth word is a word you maybe didn't expect to hear and it is the word deliverance when I say deliverance, yes, I am talking about demonic stuff. A fundamental part of our calling that is a bit unique is that we focus on all three of the major problematic areas that we all have. Every single person in this room, everybody watching and listening online struggles with three basic issues in life. The first is you get the same thing that I've got, and that is a filthy, rotten, fleshly side to you and me that craves things that God doesn't want us to crave, and yet we still crave them. Even if we've been a Christian for 50 years, we still have a a struggle with the flesh. The second thing is a world system that entices us toward evil. And the third one is the unseen kingdom of darkness, where very specific, intelligent beings are assigned to you and to me to do everything possible to turn us away from God's plans and purposes for our lives and to bring pain and chaos into our lives, our families, and, and the people around us. Churches, most churches, focus all of their energy on the first two of those three and have virtually nothing to say about that third one. And there are many problems that cannot be overcome, they can't even be significantly improved unless you know how to address the enemy. And the, the thing of it is, of the three, the demonic is the easiest to overcome. That doesn't mean it's always easy, but compared to the other two, it is far easier to get to victory there than it is... The, the other two, especially the flesh. And there is a calling and anointing for this church to be very specific in instructing and leading people toward real freedom, which it goes... Very much hand-in-hand hand with recovery as well. But helping people to break free from demonic bondages, whether that manifests itself in terms of destructive behaviors, destructive thinking, fear, oppression, depression, anxiety, just all these different ways that the enemy manifests itself. And in case anybody's getting a little nervous going, oh, are they weird and freaky about that? No, we're not. We're, not. we're just talking about learning to appropriate the victory that we have in Christ, appropriating the victory of the cross so that the enemy doesn't get to have any legal rights to us or our families, and that we just exercise that. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. I tell our people, it's like brushing your teeth. It takes about the same amount of time as it does to brush your teeth each day, and we need to be as consistent with that as we are with brushing our teeth. Do it in the morning. Do it in the evening. That you take just a little slice of your prayer time to engage in warfare prayer. That we take authority over the enemy. We confess our sins to God, submit ourselves to him. And we just speak to the enemy and declare in Jesus' name, you don't have any rights or claims in my family. And so I sever those linkings in the name of Jesus. And I declare to you in Jesus' name that you must leave me, my family, my home. And in Jesus' name, you go now to where Jesus assigns you to go, but you don't get to come back. And in place of that, we just welcome the Holy Spirit. I brush my teeth longer than that every day. I can't see what I got rid of most of the time when I brush my teeth. I can't see what I got rid of usually when I engage the enemy in warfare. But I know both of them help me. I guarantee you we need both. So we, we have a calling to help people get free in that regard. And then the, the fifth and final word that I'll say is particularly a word for us is the word kingdom. Or you might want to write next to that word the word cooperation. Again, churches without meaning to tend to start thinking way too much of the time as if the walls of the church building are are the kingdom. And that is not the case. The kingdom of God is so much greater than a local expression of the church. The church matters. But we have a calling to be a, a cooperating church that reaches out and always thinks in terms of how can we advance the kingdom of God and not think in terms of strategies that are going to advance the name of Freedom Church or of Mark Price or Brad McLean. That we don't think in those categories. Without meaning to, we can think so small. Can I tell you what small thinking does? Small thinking happens when we start measuring our success by buildings, budgets, and butts in those seats the three big B's of, of church success building, budgets, and behinds and chairs. The greatness of this church is never going to be measured by how many people we can assemble in this room. It is not our seating capacity, but our sending capacity that will measure the greatness of this church. What can we do to mobilize people to get out in the world and make a difference? We don't change the world in this room. We get recharged and encouraged in here. What happens in here is important, but this isn't the measure of the effectiveness of the church. And so God has called us to be strategic in working with other churches and thinking in terms of how do we support what's going on around us. And we do that in a variety of ways. We give every month to support other ministries around us, but we look for creative ways to work together with churches like Grace Anglican and with Grace Board. I mean, we'd never be doing this if it were not for a kingdom mindset on the part of the leadership of Graceport and of Freedom, and so to that end, we're looking for strategic opportunities. I, you know, it's interesting, Brad. You commented about you know the Sunday morning connections, and I've got guys that I communicate with like that as well. And, and one of those is um, the pastor of Genesis Church down in Gulf Shores, used to be in Foley, and he was saying how he celebrates what God's doing here today, and that they celebrate what's happening with both of our churches. And he said sort of jokingly in there, but we love each other in a way that it wasn't just a joke. He said, oh, that the Lord would let us have such a a connection to Freedom Church. And I answered back and said, well, man, kidding aside, the Lord's been telling me for months that we're supposed to somehow work with you guys. And it's, it's not a merger, but there's something we're supposed to be doing together. And I don't even know what that is. And he's just, yes, and amen. Let's find out what that is. That we have to think outside the box because we can do things better together when we stop viewing other churches as if they were as if they were the competition. I'm going to stop right there. Do you have any questions about what you just heard? I'm sure you do, but do you have any questions that you want to voice? It's okay. It's anybody got a question about any of that? All right, well, then we'll press on. We're going to move quickly through the the remaining verses here. The second truth that I want you to notice is we can't have unity without patience and humility. He says in verse 2 about living this life together, he says, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. I'll tell you this. This would not be happening if it were not for a spirit of humility, and specifically a spirit of humility among the people of Graceport Church and especially with Brad. I've been through this process once before. And, and it was an incredible thing. It, it was challenging, and it was difficult on the inside working out all that has to happen. But the results were fantastic. Mike Megenson was the pastor of Bay Area uh, Baptist Church. Not Bay Area. It's, uh, I just went blank on their, their name. No, I'm, I'm just totally screwing that part up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He was the pastor of a smaller church in the, in the area small fellowship like we were, and God led us to come together and led them to do exactly what Graceport is doing. And the result of that, it was just two little congregations coming together. But that was one of the two most important things that God ever did in the life of the church. Our two churches put together were less than 200 people, and yet something, it was just like a, a nuclear event took place when you put those things together because suddenly, eight or nine years later, the impact and the number of people involved had multiplied by like eight or tenfold. We, we were a church of a hundred and something people. They were a church of like 50 or 60 people. And we come together, and then suddenly when you look back in eight or ten years, we were a church of, on a typical Sunday, 1,400 people meeting in three services with campuses in three different communities and a, a Hope Center and all these other things going on. And it it was birthed out of just two little congregations coming together in out of obedience but Mike Meginson was one of the few pastors I've ever known who was willing to humble himself and from the very first conversation that we had to say you know what I don't think I should be the one preaching every week I don't think I should be the the point person for this ministry even though he was a dozen years older than me and far more experienced than me I, I think that I would be best in a different position and God bless that Brad's several years older than me and several years more experienced than me, and he's doing the same thing. That takes great humility. It takes humility for the people of Graceport to say, you know what, we're willing to let go of our name, we're willing to let go of our identity, we're, really, we're willing to adjust a whole bunch of different things so that we can come together and do this together. That takes great humility. There is no marriage that works well without the things that he's describing here. Humble and gentle, patient... Bearing with one another in love. This year, more than any other year, is the year that will require patience. How many married people do I have in the room? You're married now or you've ever been married? Most of us. Anybody remember any special patience required in year one of married life? Jackie and I are about to finish our sixth year of marriage. And we have a wonderful marriage. I don't know of any two people who are better suited for each other than we are. And I thought in the first six months that we were married, we were going to kill each other. I mean, we weren't willing to divorce. I don't know why anybody was getting out by death, but I was thinking that might happen. I mean, it was was crazy how hard it was. And we were well-suited to each other. A lot of bearing with each other that's required. A lot of patience. And that first year where you're having to adjust to so many things is critical. Which brings us to the third point, which is that unity doesn't just happen naturally, it takes effort. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I can remember as a young man, I would hear married people talk about, a great marriage takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of effort. And I remember thinking, well, that's just crazy. You must have married the wrong person. 'Cause I mean, if you really love somebody, if you go, ooh, all that just that mmm, that magic, that that buzz, that can't be work. It's just gotta be a joy all the time. And you think that until you get married. And then you start discovering this thing's hard. This this is wonderful and terrible all at the same time. I mean, truly, the first six months of married life felt like heaven and hell all rolled together in one reality TV show. It did. It was just the ultimate of, of good stuff with the ultimate of frustration for several months as you're learning to do life together. Paul said that's normal. That's why you have to make every effort to keep unity. There are a lot of people who in marriage go in thinking it's supposed to just be bliss and easy all the time, and they're scared off when it's, when it, the work is required. But you know who's worse about that than, than folks who are just in a marriage? Is church people. When church people get, in a sense, married up to other church people in, in that we, we do this shared life thing together and we make a commitment to do life together and it's a, it's a relationship, sort of a marriage of sorts. And then when it gets hard, when somebody does something that I don't like, somebody hurts my feelings, rather than do the hard work of working through that and and talking through it and having to be forgiven and to offer forgiveness and do those things, it's just far easier to just quit and run off and go find another church or better still just stay home and watch online and and just be mad and be hurt. People do it all the time. It is the norm in the American church to get your feelings hurt and then move down the road to the next church or to just sit at home. And what we're saying is God's call through Paul is you make every effort to work toward unity, it's going to take effort on our part. I love Jackie more today than I've ever loved her in my life. In spite of the challenges of having to do some hard work, especially early on, it was worth it. It required some adjustments from both of us. There were things that I didn't know that mattered in life that I only discovered mattered when I married Jackie. I just didn't know. I mean, I didn't know I was a slob, apparently. (laughs) Apparently, I am. But I discovered some things very quickly. Can I tell you two things I learned really fast when we got married? I thought I knew her well from dating for a while. You don't know a person until you're married to them. I discovered when we married, Jackie was not sharing her bed with a man who had not showered immediately before going to bed. And she was not sharing her house with a man who wore his shoes in the house. I had never particularly valued those two things. Let me tell you six years later, those are high on my list you will never catch me wearing shoes in my house and you will never catch me getting into the bed dirty at night. They mattered to her. took me a little while to get housebroken, but I am now house trained. They now matter to me. I didn't even realize that it matters which way you put the toilet roll on that little thing. It can feed this way or it can feed this way. Let me tell you, it's supposed to roll off the top. I was 45 years old before I learned that. Now that's silly stuff. But you get the point. There are things, no matter how old we are, that we still have to work at making adjustments if we care about other people. That we say, hmm, I never worried about that before. I never cared about that. I wouldn't choose to do it that way. But, you know what, if that serves others that I care about, if that matters to them, I can make an adjustment for them. Because I believe that what we share together is so important that it is worth me having to work at it and me make some adjustments. Jackie has made countless adjustments to make our marriage work. I've made adjustments. We're going to have to make adjustments to make this marriage work on all sides. But we have to decide on the front end that it's worth some adjustments for the benefit of what we're going to share together. The fourth truth is this. We have far more in common than what we could ever differ over. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Now, there, there are so many different ways to organize a church, to lead a church, to do ministry. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. In all the details of the Bible, it never gives us A, B, C, D. This is exactly how a church is supposed to be set up, organized, run. Tony, this is exactly how music should be. It's not there. There's no chapter of the Bible that does that. There's all this latitude for all these different ways that we could go about things. But the thing that undergirds it all is what we do share in common, the all of the, the ones. And, you know, when you really get down to it, we can have different opinions about a ton of different things as long as we agree on the fundamentals. And the list of the fundamentals is not very long. It's really important, but it's not very long. I mean, you really could sum it up this way. If we can agree on the Apostles' Creed, which is a pretty great historic summary of our faith. If we can agree on everything the Apostles' Creed says, we can disagree on just about anything else and still work well together. I put the Apostles' Creed at the end of your outline just to be reminded of that. Consider this as the fundamental thing that we're agreeing on. This is almost like You know, this could be our marriage vows of the joining of the two churches. Can we agree together on these things? That I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, this one God who eternally exists as three persons who made everything, who owns everything, and who controls it all by his powerful spoken word. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He came in the flesh, the eternally existent Son of God. He suffered, He was crucified, He died, was buried, and descended to the dead. He physically died for us. And on the third day, He rose again, He ascended into heaven, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We all will stand before the resurrected Christ to give account of our lives. And I believe in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Catholic Church. It's funny, Protestants get hung up on that phrase as if it had anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church. It does not. It is simply alluding to all people who are followers of Christ in all expressions of the Christian Church in all ages. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting, regardless of whether you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib person, regardless of what you believe about the millennium, can we agree? We will all be raised and we will spend eternity either in the presence of Christ with an eternal reward or cut off from Christ in the place of eternal punishment. If we can agree on those things, we can disagree on lots of other things. But this knits us together. In fact, why don't we just sort of recite our vows together? I'm going to invite you to stand together with me. You can hold your outline in front of you. Turn to the creed. I'm going to ask you to make one change. The creed says, I, three different times. I believe, I believe, I believe. Today, we are declaring something together. It is what we believe. So could we, not just mumbling an old document, but can we, as a fresh expression of our faith in Christ and our union together in Him, can we declare together this as our confession of faith? We believe in God, the Father Almighty. Creator of heaven and earth, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for that. That binds us together. 109 words that we can say in about 30 seconds, and yet it sums up what we believe. The fifth and final thing we'll say is this. We're reminded by Paul that we are joined as one family by the fatherhood of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The Father loves it when His children don't see themselves as only children. When we see that we've got lots of brothers and sisters and that we're called to do family life together, it was inconceivable to first century Christians that they would be saved and not belong to the church. It is a community family experience. And the thing that unites us is God is our Father. Jesus is our Lord. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as He was with His disciples, that night when He shared communion with them, in John 17, is that great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. Much of it He prayed over the disciples who were there with Him. But in that prayer, He shifted gears and then He looked ahead to us, those who would believe because of the testimony of those apostles And he prayed this in John 17, 20, and 21. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world will believe. I'll promise you this. What God is doing here today is going to in bringing us together, it is going to have far more impact than you can imagine on the world. The world is so turned off to seeing Christians fighting each other, attacking each other, distrusting each other. And I know because I've been through this before, it blows the minds of the world to watch Christians who aren't even starting out in the same camp coming together and saying, we love you and we embrace you and we work together. And the world goes, wow, maybe this Jesus stuff is for real. Maybe it's not just hypocrisy. Maybe this thing about loving one another is the real deal. I want to tell you, God is in that. He is pleased by those things.